Hi friends, welcome. I'm so glad to have you back with us as we continue our series, Resilience, the Wartime Incarceration of Japanese Americans. After President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, which was very broad in its language, the military began the process of interpreting it and enacting it. Military leader who oversaw the task, General John DeWitt, issued over a hundred exclusion orders in quick succession and demanded that Japanese Americans, even those with as little as one-sixteenth ancestry, prepare themselves for being sent to incarceration camps. They had under two weeks to pack up, to give up everything they owned, everything they treasured, and prepare for the unknown. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On March 2nd, 1942, Lieutenant General John DeWitt, who had been given the task of heading up the military's Western Defense Command, issued a proclamation that established two military areas in the United States. Military Area 1 consisted of the westernmost half of Washington, Oregon, and California, as well as the southern half of Arizona. The remainder of the states in the U.S. made up Military Area 2. Later that month, the military announced their intentions to remove all people of Japanese descent from Military Area 1. The removal, which the government called an evacuation, began almost immediately. Let's hear from Professor Lorraine Benai to explain some of the details. There was this law, and pursuant to Executive Order 9066, military commander on the West Coast, General John L. DeWitt, began to issue a series of orders. He first issued a curfew order that applied to persons of Japanese ancestry, whether citizen or 
immigrant and to immigrants of Italian and German ancestry, not to citizens of Italian and German ancestry. So the curfew was imposed, and that was followed by a freeze order issued only against Japanese um, nationals and Japanese Americans, saying that they could not leave the West Coast except pursuant to future military order, and then an order that they be removed from the West Coast. And up and down the West Coast, there were, quote, civilian exclusion orders that ordered Japanese Americans in one area after another, giving them 10 days notice to pack up and report to the army for removal to temporary restrained areas called assembly centers, and then to 10 more permanent camps within the interior of the United States. One thing I want to note is that the last order issued, the removal order, was really that Japanese Americans report for removal. When they reported for removal, they were moved by the army into these camps. There was no separate order that ordered them into the internment camps. The order, basically the army moved them into these temporary horse stalls you've heard about, the fairgrounds, and then they were moved to 10 more permanent camps in the interior. Many, of course, stayed for up to about three years or or so. You have to keep in mind that two thirds of those who were removed were American citizens, right? And so it defies any reason that citizens who are entitled to due process, entitled to notice and hearing, and all of that could be subject to this mass removal without hearings, notice, and screening. President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9102 on March 18, 1942, which created the War Relocation Authority, a government agency that was tasked with organizing and speeding along the process of incarceration. From the end of March to August, approximately 112,000 Japanese Americans were sent to what the military called assembly centers. But like Professor Benai said, these were often nothing more than racetracks or fairgrounds. They were a stopgap area where the military could process individuals and families and organize them into groups that would head to larger and longer-term incarceration centers built by the military that would be their home the duration of the war. The U.S. was also not the only country to consider its citizens of Japanese descent a threat to national security. Canada forcibly relocated and incarcerated over 22,000 Japanese Canadians from British Columbia on the country's west coast, a number that represented over 90% of the total Japanese Canadian population at the time. And in Mexico and South America, more than 2,200 people of Japanese descent were forcibly removed from places like Peru, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, and many of them were sent to U.S. incarceration camps. While the U.S. government publicly called them relocation centers, the incarceration camps were situated many miles inland, often in remote locations areas of the country that were largely tribal and had been taken from native populations. Noteworthy is that the incarceration rates were significantly lower in the then U.S. territory of Hawaii, where the bombing had taken place. Japanese Americans made up over one-third of the population on the island chain, and their labor was needed to sustain the economy. 
The military did declare martial law following the Pearl Harbor attack, however, and the army stationed there restricted and kept tabs on the Japanese-Americans through hundreds of military orders. And what about other populations of immigrants? Did the U.S. place restrictions or incarcerate Italian-Americans or German-Americans? Here's Professor Benai again. Certainly in the research, in what I've looked at, there wasn't that hostility against Italian-Americans and German-Americans. So, as you know, Japanese-Americans were incarcerated in mass with no hearings or, or anything. German and Italian immigrants were given individual hearings if they were under suspicion, but there was no mass incarceration of them. You could see in some of the hearings that were conducted around the time, the feeling that Japanese Americans were the ones to be suspicious of, and there was nothing to fear from the Italians and the German Americans. In fact, at one of the hearings, one of the people testifying said, you can't possibly have a situation where Joe DiMaggio's father will be stopped from fishing in San Francisco Bay. And so the whole idea that Joe DiMaggio's father might be taken away was outrageous to anyone. In fact, Giuseppe and Rosalia DiMaggio, baseball legend Joe DiMaggio's parents, who are both Italian immigrants, were among the thousands of German, Japanese, and Italian immigrants the government classified as enemy aliens. The DiMaggios lived inside of Military Area 1, But instead of incarceration, the DiMaggios were required to carry photo ID booklets at all times and had to apply for a permit to travel outside of a five-mile radius of their home. Giuseppe was ultimately banned from being on the San Francisco Bay waters where he had fished for decades, and his boat was seized. Joe DiMaggio enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Forces and rose to the rank of sergeant. He spent the war on bases in the U.S., first in Santa Ana and then in New Jersey and Hawaii. And even though he asked for a combat assignment because he was embarrassed by his cushy military jobs, he was turned down. No one was going to put famous Joe DiMaggio in harm's way. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place. Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes stinky feet and those stinky shoes pile up 
by the door of your house. And then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that. And it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. The other thing, of course, is that Japanese Americans are much more readily identifiable, or at least the ideas that you can tell an Asian American from someone who's not Asian American, and that the time there were newspaper articles, magazine articles that had like two page spreads. And on one side, it's kind of like how to tell a Chinese American from a Japanese American. And they had on one side a Chinese and the other side a Japanese. And they had little lines to their eyes and talking about the difference between their eyes and nose and things like that. And then there were buttons that some Chinese Americans would wear that I'm not Japanese. And so it was just a bizarre and frightening time. So I think certainly because of this history of animosity and because Japanese Americans look different, they would be treated differently from German and Italian immigrants. After the relocation of Japanese Americans had been completed, General DeWitt went so far as to lift some of the curfew restrictions that had been placed on Italian Americans and German Americans. None of these loosened restrictions applied to Japanese Americans. His final report laid out his position that their race and ancestry made it impossible to determine their loyalty and made incarceration a necessary action. In fact, he made it clear that he wanted Japanese Americans to be incarcerated 
indefinitely. The original version of the report was so offensive and so misleading that DeWitt's co-writer on it, Colonel Carl Bendison, ended up ordering all of the copies of it destroyed. The contents of the original copy remained cloaked in mystery for nearly 40 years. Of course, even without particulars, it would have been pretty easy to conclude how racist and offensive the report was based on the onslaught of propaganda that began to circulate after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Because as Professor Benai mentioned, anti-Japanese propaganda was at an all-time high. And it dealt in racism, not facts. These political cartoons that were in newspapers and Propaganda posters that hung in populated places debased the Japanese race as subhuman, depicting them as apes and gorillas, dishonest in nature, corrupt and intellectually inferior to white Americans. Theodore Seuss Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss, did not begin his career as a children's book author, and even though he had published a few titles in the late 1930s, from 1940 to 1948, he worked full-time as the chief editorial cartoonist for the New York-based newspaper PM. During the war, Seuss created nearly 400 cartoons that often supported America's war effort. He praised FDR's policies and even took some shots at isolationists, Charles Lindbergh in particular, for being opposed to the U.S. entry into the war. And he also created anti-Japanese political cartoons. In one large black and white square in Seuss's signature, rounded, childlike sketching, a long line of Japanese Americans stretched through the West Coast happily waiting to each take a brick of TNT. The cartoon's caption reads, Waiting for the signal from home. A decade later, the author would travel to Japan to research an article for Life magazine. With the help of his Japanese liaison, Mitsugi Nakamura, Seuss went to schools all over Japan and asked kids to draw what they wanted to be when they grew up. He was deeply affected by the project, and when he returned to the U.S., he started work on his book, Horton, Here's a Who. He said in an interview, Japan was just emerging. The people were voting for the first time, running their own lives, and the theme was obvious. A person's a person, no matter how small. Though I don't know how I ended up using elephants. He dedicated the book to my great friend Mitsugi Nakamura of Kyoto, Japan. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines... You might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. 
It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In a poster prepared by the Special Services Division of the U.S. Army in 1942, the large headline reads... How to Spot a Jap. And many similar articles ran in magazines, including Life magazine, which published How to Tell Japs from the Chinese, a spread that breaks down racist physical traits for readers. Other images that were created as propaganda relied on scary illustrations to elicit fear out of Americans. A 1942 poster called This is the Enemy shows a menacing, ape-like Japanese man looming over a fearful white woman. The man's teeth are bared, his hat is plastered with the Japanese flag, and as he reaches for the woman in his clawed hands, he holds a sharply pointed knife. Not all Americans were swayed by propaganda, and many expressed their disagreement with Executive Order 9066 and the incarceration of Japanese Americans. A small group of progressive church organizations that included the Quaker-led American Friends Service Committee hosted modestly attended protests. Socialist Party leader Norman Thomas circulated a petition to void FDR's executive order. The petition was signed by nearly 200 notable thought leaders and progressives of the day, influencers like Pearl S. Buck and W.E.B. Du Bois. 
Unfortunately, it had no impact. There were military officers who expressed reservations too. Lieutenant Commander Katie Ringel, who worked in the Office of Naval Intelligence, never found any proof of sabotage or espionage by a Japanese-American. He wrote a memo about it to several of his colleagues, saying the entire Japanese problem has been magnified out of its true proportion, largely due to the physical characteristics of the people. And if you listen to our previous series, Momentum, it may come as a surprise to you to learn that even FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover expressed doubts about incarceration. He wrote a letter to the U.S. Attorney General Francis Biddle that said the demand for removal was based primarily on public and political pressure rather than factual data. A.G. Biddle was all too aware. In a few meetings with military officials shortly after the Pearl Harbor attack, Biddle spoke up against the idea of the forced removal of Japanese Americans, claiming it was ill-advised, unnecessary, and unnecessarily cruel. Even First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt called for cooler heads to prevail. She traveled to California just a few days following the attack, and although it was met with much disapproval, she insisted on being photographed with Japanese Americans a practice she would continue throughout the war as she visited incarceration camps in the United States' interior. In her nationally syndicated newspaper called My Day, Eleanor wrote on December 16, 1941, we as citizens, if we hear anything suspicious, will report it to the proper authorities. But the great mass of our people, stemming from these various national ties, must not feel that they have suddenly ceased to be Americans. This is perhaps the greatest test this country has ever met, she said. If we cannot keep in check anti-Semitism, anti-racial feelings, as well as anti-religious feelings, then we shall have removed from the world the one real hope for the future on which all humanity must now rely. In the end, These small resistances to the louder call for the forced removal of Japanese Americans were quickly drowned out. Dissenters like Attorney General Biddle took a step back from early opposition. When Biddle wrote in his 1962 autobiography, he said, The decision had been made by the president. It was, he said, a matter of military judgment. And I did not think I should oppose it any further. But one public official persisted, and he persisted loudly. The Japanese are loyal Americans, Colorado Governor Ralph Carr wrote in an editorial. I am not in sympathy with those who demand that all evacuees be placed in concentration camps, regardless of their American citizenship or of the legality of their presence here. Our Constitution guarantees to every man before he is deprived of his freedom, that there be charges and proof of misconduct in a fair hearing. Ralph Carr was born in Colorado in 1887, the son of a miner. After earning his law degree at the University of Colorado, he moved to the southern portion of the state to practice law. There he shared friendships with many of the Japanese-American farming families who lived and worked in the region. A Republican, 
Carr was a fiscal conservative who championed many social issues. By 1938, he had chosen to run as governor on the Republican ticket and won his first two-year term. He was a popular public figure. He was easily re-elected in 1940. Jason Hansen, who is the Director of Interpretation and Research for History Colorado, says when the War Department asked Western governors about this plan to bring Japanese people to their states from the West Coast, Ralph Carr was the only one who said yes. There was already a Japanese population in Colorado, both in Denver and in the southern portion of the state. Carr didn't say yes because he was in favor of Japanese incarceration camps, but rather his stance was that if Japanese Americans were going to be incarcerated, then they should be treated fairly. And he hoped that the state of Colorado could provide that fairness. So in the end, he also didn't say no, right? He didn't take a moral stand to prohibit the incarceration from happening in his state. Instead, he declared, as a good American, if this is what the war effort requires, Colorado will do its duty. Carr's acceptance of the Grenada War Relocation Center, which was known as Camp Amachi, brought with it an onslaught of hate mail and threats from angry citizens. They did not want Japanese Americans to be brought into their state, even to be incarcerated behind barbed wire fences lined with guards. When the first buses of Japanese Americans arrived at Camp Amachi, an angry crowd showed up to protest. Carr placed himself between his constituents and the Japanese Americans who were being taken into the camp. He said, they're not gonna take over the vegetable business of this state and they're not going to take over the Arkansas Valley but the Japanese are protected by the same constitution that protects us. An American citizen of Japanese descent has the same rights as any other citizen. If you harm them, he told the people, you must first harm me. I was brought up in small towns where I knew the shame and dishonor of race hatred. I grew to despise it because it threatened the happiness of us all. Ultimately, his unpopular position cost Governor Carr his political ambitions. He lost a run for Senate in 1942 to his opponent, a Democrat who openly criticized Carr's welcoming of Japanese Americans in Colorado. And although Ralph Carr lost his political career, he cannot compare to what Japanese Americans lost. In just days, the lives they'd been living had come to an end in so many ways we rarely consider. Join me next time when we visit families on the West Coast as they comply with government orders to leave their homes behind. Thanks for being here today. I'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Where It Gets Interesting. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or a review or sharing a link to it on your social media? All of those things help podcasters out so much. Here's Where It Gets Interesting is written and researched by executive producer Heather Jackson. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder, and it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. See you again soon.